You're listening to Undetermined, Deaths, Disappearances, and Mysteries. I'm your host, Dr. N. Today, I want to cover the disappearance of Lauren Spearer. This case is frustrating, and a lot of news outlets that covered the case and even podcasts over the years tend to err on the side of victim blaming. So to be clear, there will be no victim shaming or blaming happening on this podcast, ever. Lauren Spear went missing in 2011 in Bloomington, Indiana. She was a sophomore at Indiana University at the time, and she was 20 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen in the early morning hours of June 3rd, 2011. I'll go through a detailed timeline of that night, but the last place she was with people that she knew well was in her friend Jay's apartment around 12.30 that morning. So due to all the surveillance footage that we have, there is a very specific timeline that we can recreate. And this is one of those cases where there is a lot of footage, but it just makes her disappearance all that more puzzling. Police were able to recreate a pretty precise timeline given the footage and witness statements, but it was no help in locating her. It almost seems like she just vanished into thin air. And she's still missing to this day, over nine years later. The night of her disappearance, Lauren had been hanging out with a group of her friends, mostly guys. Her boyfriend was not among those in attendance, but he did text her throughout the night and before he went to bed that evening. It was a Friday night, and there was a lot of drinking, possibly some drug use going on, but that's never really been corroborated or proven. Witnesses said Lauren appeared incredibly intoxicated before leaving her friend Jay's apartment. So let's go into the timeline of where Lauren was between Jay's apartment and when she vanished. Lauren was at Jay's apartment around 12.30, according to witnesses. She arrived there with another friend, David. At Jay's place, Lauren met up with an acquaintance, Corey, who was Jay's neighbor. Lauren then left Jay's apartment with Corey, according to witnesses, and that's where the surveillance footage picks them up, arriving at a local sports bar, Kilroy's, at 1.46 in the morning. They spent about 40 minutes at the bar, and more footage captured them leaving the bar at around 2.27 a.m. Lauren left the bar with no shoes and no phone. Now, she took her shoes off when she went out on the sand-covered patio. A lot of bars like to create that beach-like atmosphere, so it kind of makes sense that she didn't have shoes on. And her phone was later recovered at the bar the next day. Corey and Lauren then headed to Lauren's apartment building. Surveillance footage captured Lauren and Corey entering her apartment complex, the Smallwood Plaza Apartments, at around 2.30 in the morning. A witness stated that he actually stopped and asked if she was okay because she appeared so intoxicated to the point of needing assistance. Lauren and Corey would never actually make it into her apartment, though. Corey claimed there was an altercation with a group of guys where he was allegedly punched in the face. It's unknown why they did not continue on to Lauren's apartment, but they decided to leave the Smallwood Plaza complex and return to Corey's complex instead, where the night had started. 
Surveillance footage then showed Lauren and Corey leaving her complex at 2.48 a.m., entering an alley that runs between College Avenue and Morton Street. On another security camera, Lauren is shown exiting the alley at 2.51 a.m. and walking toward an empty lot. Police later found Lauren's keys and her purse in the alley. Presumably she had dropped them on the way. On their way back to Corey's apartment complex, more witnesses claim seeing Lauren having a lot of trouble walking, taking a few hard falls along the way. Corey said that he picked her up at one point and carried her because she was having such great difficulty. Lauren and Corey did make it to Corey's apartment, where Corey's roommate, Michael, was home. Corey was also very heavily intoxicated. He actually didn't even make it all the way upstairs before getting sick. His roommate, Michael, made sure he did get up the stairs, got into bed, and was taken care of. And then he attempted to talk Lauren into staying as well. According to Michael, Lauren was adamant about returning to her own apartment. At this point, she had no keys, no phone, no shoes, and no purse. It's really easy for people to judge her actions and wonder why she ever left her own apartment in the first place when she at least had the means of getting in at that point. But we have to remember what alcohol and potentially drugs do to our brains. It makes higher level executive functioning very difficult. Rational decision making is put on the back burner. So criticizing Lauren for her confusing actions is pretty unfair, especially if she was drugged against her will. We'll get into that theory in a bit. At this point, Lauren really wants to go home. Most of us have probably been in a similar situation where we have had a night out, we let loose, got drunk, and at some point, you hit a wall. That wall is a very stubborn place where all we want is our home, our own bed, immediately. Trust me, I understand that feeling, and I know a lot of you probably do too. And admittedly, I have stumbled home drunk from a bar by myself before, so I'm certainly in no place to judge her mindset. In hindsight, I count myself incredibly lucky to have made it home safe in those instances, no matter how small the distance. But in that moment, all you care about is making it home. You're not thinking about your missing phone or your keys or your shoes. You just want to get in your bed and go to sleep. Going back to the timeline, at around 3.30 a.m., Corey's roommate Michael calls Jay. Remember, they're neighbors. He knew Jay was a friend of Lauren and wanted Jay to take care of her. He knew that she probably trusted Jay since she's known him for a longer amount of time. He probably thought she would listen to him. Lauren eventually does go to Jay's apartment, where Jay says he saw that she had a bruise on her eye. Jay recounted Lauren couldn't say where she got the bruise, and she didn't remember how it happened. Jay says Lauren used his phone to make two phone calls that night. One to David, the friend she arrived at Jay's place with at the beginning of the night, and one to another friend who was never identified. Neither call was answered, and she left no messages. 
Fast forward an hour to 4.30 in the morning. This is when Jay claims Lauren left his apartment. And this was the last known sighting of Lauren. Jay claims to have watched Lauren walk out of the apartment and cross the intersection of 11th Street and College Avenue, heading south on college back to her apartment. At that point, she was barefoot, wearing black leggings and a white shirt. Hours later, Lauren's boyfriend texted her to see if she was okay because he hadn't heard from her since he went to bed. He received a reply from an employee at the bar where she left her phone and shoes. Her boyfriend, Jesse, ended up reporting her missing that day. At this point, Lauren's parents believe that she is dead, which is heartbreaking. They've never stopped looking for their daughter, though. They believe that, based on the witness statements, it was possible that Lauren had been drugged at the bar without her knowledge. It's hard to know how much she had to drink and what other drugs she might have taken that could explain her behavior with without the presence of an unknown or an unwanted drug in her system. It's mostly speculation. Even the witnesses who had been with her most of the night were also drinking and not paying attention to how much she had, at least not in a meticulous way. So there's really no objective way to approach this theory. Now it should be noted that Lauren was very small in stature. She was only 4'11", and she only weighed 90 pounds. So it really didn't take a lot at all for her to become incredibly intoxicated, a lot less than most average-sized men and women. So that should be taken into account when we're thinking about how much she had to drink and what kind of drugs she had taken. It's really not going to take as much as most other people that we know. In the years following Lauren's disappearance, police didn't have any luck in finding a lead that produced anything of substance. However, years later, there was an interesting connection that many people made to another similar case that I want to talk about now. In 2017, Brown County Prosecutor Ted Adams stated that he believed a local man, Daniel Messel, was involved in Lauren's disappearance. Messel had been convicted of killing another IU student under very similar circumstances. Hannah Wilson was 22 when her body was discovered, just hours after she was last seen on a Friday night in April of 2015. She had just completed her final exam as an IU student and was getting ready to graduate. She lived in a house off campus with her sorority sisters. She had been out that night celebrating the end of her college career, along with the celebration of the Little 500 races, which is notorious for campus parties in Bloomington. Hannah had attended parties that night and was intoxicated. Now, unlike Lauren, Hannah was found very quickly with the killer's cell phone right near her body. She had been beaten to death, and her killer, Daniel Messel, was a single 50-year-old employee at a print shop. When they searched Messel's home, they found clothes covered in blood along with blood in his car. Hannah's whereabouts are accounted for until around 12.45 a.m. on April 24, 2015. 
She was drinking with an old boyfriend and another friend at her house before going to the hotel that the old friend was staying at. They then left for, you guessed it, Kilroy Sports Bar. However, Hannah never actually made it into the bar. The people she was with decided that she was too drunk to continue drinking. Pretty responsible. They decided to get her a cab that would take her home. The cab driver stated that he dropped her off at home and watched her stumble up the sidewalk to her home. Phone records showed Hannah made a phone call to a friend around 1 a.m., though he had trouble hearing her because he was in a loud bar. Her roommate heard Hannah open the door around 1 a.m., but never actually heard the door close. The next morning, her roommates found Hannah's phone and purse on her bed, and it didn't appear to be slept in. The front door was left wide open, and there were no signs of Hannah. Hannah had actually made it all the way back home. Lauren, for all we know, never made it back home. It's likely that security cameras would have captured any movement she made back toward her apartment. If she managed to slip by them, she wouldn't have been able to make it inside without her keys. She may have realized that she was missing her keys and attempted to retrace her steps, but again, there's no evidence that she made it very far. There are other theories that hit a little closer to her circle of friends. Let's talk about that altercation that I briefly touched on earlier that happened at Lauren's apartment complex where Corey was allegedly punched in the face. Now I say allegedly because there's no surveillance footage of this happening. We're just going off of Corey's word. A lot of people get hung up on this altercation as a potential sign that Corey was not being very gentlemanly. To be clear, based on the evidence of that night, it would have been nearly impossible for Corey to be involved in Lauren's disappearance. But the altercation is interesting and may shed some light on the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. If it had never happened, would Lauren be with us today? Would they have gone to our apartment and called in a night there? I don't have the answer to that, but the altercation began a chain of events that ended with her going missing. The guy who allegedly punched Corey was named Zach, and apparently they'd run into him and his crew while trying to get into Lauren's apartment. Some people speculate that Zach was trying to protect Lauren. Now, I'm not sure why he would step in if that was his intent. But one of Corey's friends later mentioned that the guys Corey fought with, Zach's crew, were friends of Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse. So there could have been a connection there where Zach was trying to look out for his friend and his friend's girlfriend. But again, that's all hearsay and speculation. Jesse's also very unlikely source of Lauren's disappearance as he was home all night. He also made the missing persons report. There are also rumors of Lauren's past behavior and drug habits that may have contributed to her disappearance. Some people speculate that she could have accidentally overdosed or was drugged without her knowledge in combination with other substances that could have killed her, and that those around her panicked and disposed of her body. Most of the people around her were also incredibly inebriated, so it would have been 
awfully difficult to pull off a plan that effectively hid her for a decade, with no one feeling guilty enough to ever say anything about it afterward. That would take immense coordination, something I, I don't really think any of the guys she was with were capable of at that time. Another side to this story is that the effects of the alcohol and whatever drug combination she might have had didn't kick in until she left Jay's apartment alone. Jay has actually made statements that Lauren had done cocaine in his apartment and the police did find cocaine in her things. So there is probably some truth to the drug angle. So if there had been some other drug that she had been given against her will, it could have had a pretty devastating effect in combination with what she'd already taken. There are beliefs that she might have been alone when she died if it didn't kick in until after she left the apartment. And there are a lot of different variations of this theory that are possible, but it would have had to happen in an opportune location, far away from any witnesses and people with no possibility that they would find her later. So it's, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not entirely convincing. The one detail about Lauren that makes the accidental death theory more plausible in my eyes is that she suffered from long QT syndrome, which is a heart defect that can cause fainting, hearing loss, and even seizures. It can also result in sudden death. Given her state at the time, it's possible that she suffered from consequences of her condition. If she had been among friends, they might have been afraid of getting in trouble for providing her with alcohol, possibly drugs, or just being in possession of them. They may have thought the death would be blamed on them in some way, that they would be found to be negligent, and maybe they didn't know she had an underlying condition that increased her risk of death. If she was alone, it's pretty curious that no one found any trace of her. There were extensive searches for Lauren in the days following her disappearance, which makes this possibility less plausible. There's another belief that maybe she was involved in an accident after leaving Jay's. Like, maybe she was hit by a car. Drunk driving in Bloomington was a pretty big problem back then, and these were the days before ride shares like Uber, and I'm thankful all of these folks were walking around instead of driving under the influence, but there is a risk when you're walking of getting hit by a car, especially when your motor functions are limited. This is another panic type situation where the person who supposedly hits her with the car panics and disposes of her body. Again, not impossible, and given the circumstances, it's up there in terms of plausibility. But without any sort of witness statements as to Lauren's whereabouts after she left on her own, it's hard to know if there's an angle here worth pursuing. Now, another theory is the stranger abduction theory. Given the similarities to Hannah Wilson's case, this theory is pretty strong. I already talked at length about Hannah's case 
and the similarities it shows with Lauren's case. There are others who believe that Lauren was taken advantage of and abducted while trying to make it home by someone she didn't know. Some details we know from the police are that there was a white pickup truck caught on surveillance camera twice in the area of Lauren's disappearance the morning she went missing. In the image that they released, something appears to be in the bed of the truck that might resemble a human body. Police later cleared the driver, but they believed that it was highly plausible that she could have been easily overpowered given her size and lack of motor functioning and taken against her will by a passing stranger. If that's the case, the search area would have needed to be much wider. They could have gotten pretty far in a matter of hours before anyone realized that she was gone. Police and FBI were also involved in a search of a nearby landfill later that year, sifting through over 4,000 tons of garbage for over a week, but to no avail. And despite the issue of a $250,000 reward and massive coverage on local and nationwide news, documentaries, and podcasts, there have been no credible leads as to the location of Lauren Spearer. The FBI even dug up farmland in Indiana in 2016 looking for her, but again, it was a false lead. Members of the FBI believe her friends had something to do with it, and that they were covering for themselves by lawyering up. Many theories abound, and even members of the FBI believe her friends had something to do with it, that they may have been covering up by lawyering up. It's wildly speculative, with one agent saying that he got a tip that Lauren had had a bad reaction to a drug that she had taken, and she had died at the apartment, her friends deciding to dispose of her body in the Ohio River in a panic. There's a lot of finger-pointing at the friends who she was with that night that's incited years of angry rhetoric surrounding the case. I don't want to delve too much into that aspect because I think the focus should be on finding Lauren, not on her friends who seem to care more about saving their reputation than finding her. Granted, they got a lot of negative media attention for being some of the last people to see her, and they experienced a lot of criticism and skepticism, even hatred throughout the years. So to a point, I understand the defensive response, but victim blaming and seemingly unwillingness to help because you think it will make you a target isn't really the way to go. They could have been swayed by the many cases where detectives are trying to find any reason to bring you in for questioning, using any piece of information against you. I get it. I've covered a number of wrongful imprisonment cases in the Forensic Files podcast, including cases of false confession, and even cases of incompetent handling of evidence that's put innocent people in jail for decades, or even put them to death. It's pretty horrendous. But there remains heavy skepticism regarding the friend's unwillingness to cooperate with police and general disinterest in helping her family find Lauren. They refused to take polygraphs and even stated publicly that they didn't trust the police at all. A strange statement. Polygraphs I understand not wanting to take, they're not 
entirely valid. But it seems that they are withholding details from that night. Whether they contributed to her disappearance or not doesn't really matter. Even small, seemingly inconsequential details could help police find her. No detail is too small. Again, every lead has led police to a dead end. And Lauren vanished without a trace. The details surrounding her disappearance and assumed death may never be uncovered. Until there is a credible lead or she is found, this case remains undetermined. Thank you for listening to episode 9. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please let me know your thoughts on the case through Instagram at undeterminedpod or by emailing me at undeterminedpod at gmail.com. If you have an undetermined story of your own, I'd love to share it on the podcast. Please send it to me in an email linked in the episode notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe, download episodes, and leave a review. And as always, stay curious. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. Sources for all episodes can be found at the link in the episode notes. All music you hear in this podcast was written and produced by me, Dr. N.